0: i'm garrick in the first half of today's episode we'll be discussing reformed apologetics and presuppositionalism with dr jv fesco author of reforming apologetics And this is Timothy. In the second half,
1: we'll be talking about a song from one of my favorite bands in the history of rock and roll. The song is Free Will, and the band is Rush. We'll cover free will, Molinism, Compatibilism, and whether or not I could have chosen a different hat to wear today.
0: To learn more about the theology of the Reformation, take a look at the book Theology of the Reformers by Timothy George, published by our friends at B&H Academic.
1: That is Theology of the Reformers. For more information about this great book and many others, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the apologetics podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. Thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth books and merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Every Christian agrees that we should do apologetics, but not everyone agrees when it comes to the issue of how we do apologetics. Some Christians are committed to presuppositional apologetics, some practiced evidential apologetics, and many of you have no idea what any of those terms that I've just mentioned even mean. Well, in this episode, we welcome Dr. J.V. Fesco, who serves with our friends at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's here to talk with us about history and apologetic methods in Reformed theology. Welcome, Dr.
0: Fesco.
2: It's great to be here with you guys today. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Dr. Fresco.
0: if you, this is a, an opening random question, having nothing to do with apologetics, but still equally awesome. If you could be the lead singer of any rock band, past or present, what band would that be?
2: It's a question that causes me great existential angst. <laughs> and of course, setting aside the Morality or immorality of said musicians Yes, absolutely <laughs> I thought about this one for a while And I think I might have to go with Diamond Dave David Lee Roth of Van yes. Halen <laughs> I'm not a Van Hater. You know, I mean, I, I the Sammy Hagar genre is okay It's different But uh, yeah, it'd probably have to be David Lee Roth oh, yeah. I love that, Great. I love that I'm with you on that <laughs>
1: Well, in this episode, we are going to be mentioning Cornelius Van Til and presuppositionalism several times. And so what I want us to explore first is just to ask you to articulate What is presuppositionalism? How do you understand what presuppositionalism actually even is? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think that I can start off by defining it in contrast to other views, at least as Van Til would do so. So say, for example, an evidentialist would say, I'm gonna argue from the various evidences that we see, whether it's the evidence for the resurrection or the the accuracy of the scriptures or what have you, and, and I'll build my way up to who God is. Or so, for example, say the so-called classical apologist says, I'm going to begin with logical arguments for the existence of God and work my way up from these various arguments to theism and then from theism to the God of the Bible. And Van Til would call that blockhouse apologetics where you build one block upon one another and stack them up until you get to the truth of the Bible. But when Van Til, would, in contrast, would say is, no, we need to presuppose the categories that we're defending And so we need to presuppose the Christian faith— and he would even go as far as to say not just generic Christian faith, but the the faith of the Reformed tradition, the faith of the Reformed confessions. That is your presupposition. You begin with what he would say the self attesting Christ of Scripture, or you begin with the ontological Trinity as your key presupposition. And if you begin with that presupposition, you then argue that it's coherent and consistent, and it has the best explanation of all of the facts and all of the things that we see in the this world, and then you use that presupposition to challenge the other presuppositions of unbelieving systems of thought to show that the Christian worldview is the most consistent and coherent explanation of God, man, and the world as we know it. And so, he likened it not to blockhouse apologetics where you're stacking blocks upon one another, but rather he said it was like a nuclear bomb, that it was the argument that you begin with. And he even had a label for this, the transcendental argument for the existence of God. You rise up above all of the claims and you begin from God and work your way down.
1: So, why do you think, and it's thinking about Cornelius Til, who of course is a 20th century Reformed theologian, and as we think about this, why do you think that his method, presuppositionalism, has become so popular among those of us who see ourselves in line with, say, Calvin and Augustine, because that's where, in the Reformed tradition, it has become a very popular approach to apologetics.
2: I think that two things come to mind. First is that, and this is something that Van Til talks about, is that, you know, in his essay on nature and scripture, he says that he wants to find a unique reformed approach to apologetics. And I think that this is something that people like to hear. They they discover the truths of the Reformation, and in discovering these truths, they realize that there's a unique doctrine of justification, there's a unique doctrine of the Church, there's all of these unique emphases that you find coming out of the 16th century Reformation and as they're codified in the, in the confessions that came out of that period— and so Van Til, I think, wanted to carry that idea forward and saying, no, well, there's this unique approach to apologetics, and it has to be distinctly reformed in contrast to other approaches, Roman Catholic approaches, Arminian approaches, and what have you. And I think people— who get into Reformed theology, they're like, well, I want to be Reformed, and I don't want to be unreformed, and if there's this area that hasn't been Reformed, then I need to adopt this idea. So that's the, the first, I think, big piece of the puzzle. The second piece of the puzzle is that there's, I don't know, I think I want to call it a, a problematic historiography of the Reformation, and the popular version of it is is that the 16th century Reformation, say, for example, John Calvin, represents a complete and total break from the medieval past and the early church, and so that means that… Calvin's theology is going to be radically different, and, and you see this, for example, in a claim by, say, somebody like Herman Doivierd, a Dutch reformed philosopher, who said that Calvin begins with the self-attesting Christ of Scripture and not with, say, these logical arguments as you see in Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. And so it's this idea that Calvin supposedly rejected the past, and so we need to follow in Calvin's footsteps, and we need to reject our medieval past, because ultimately that's Roman Catholic, and we want to be reformed in these areas, and we want to do this in a reformed manner.
0: You've recently released the book, Reforming Apologetics, which Mm -hmm. Timothy and I have both read Mm -hmm. and have thoroughly enjoyed. What were you setting out to do with that work? What was the motivation and and the hoped-for result?
2: Yeah. I think that because so many people, for example, maybe do a cursory reading of Calvin's Institutes, the opening chapters, and they think that, okay, yeah, this is different from Aquinas. He doesn't supposedly start with these logical arguments for the existence of God, and so people like Van Til and others pick this up. And I would read Van Til— But then I love classic theology, so I would read Calvin, I would read Turretin, I would read some of these other distinctly reformed authors from the 16th and 17th century, John Owen, Westminster Divines, and I didn't hear and read the same things that I would see in Van Til, and it kind of always bothered me. So one of the big purposes was to, in a sense, go back and say, what has the tradition historically said on these subjects, and why is there a difference between Van Til and the tradition in the past on this? And in particular, there are a number of statements and things that Van Til himself has said where he saw himself as pushing past the tradition, not at every point, but at certain points, Say, for example, when he talks about the scholastics, well, the scholastics are rationalists, and therefore we have to reject it. Well, maybe if I was in Van Til's day, I would have been saying the same thing. You know, I always say that it's only the children that can see the parents' sins and faults. If we knew what we were doing wrong now, well, we would change it, but we can't often get that kind of perspective. And so we now know with the Steinmetz-Obermann-Richard Muller revolution that that's that's inaccurate historiography. So that's the thing, is to get back to the tradition, almost get back to the basics and recover what it is that we've said in the past. Second thing I think was important is that I remember being around a group of young people and overhearing some folks talk about, well, I don't have any Christian friends, and I don't even know what I would do if I were to try to interact with a non-Christian And I thought part of me almost thinks that sometimes in the Reformed tradition we can become too insular and we're afraid of interacting with the unbelieving world because, well, that's pagan thought. we got to keep all pagan thought at a distance. But if we recognize, say, with the Belgic Confession, as it says there in its opening articles, that God has written two books, the Book of Scripture and the Book of Nature— then that means that maybe the unbelievers are reading this book of nature, but it's God's truth that they're dealing with. And so here we have something that we have in common that we share with them, and this is something that the Reformers talked about under this concept that they called common notions, that there's these shared truths that we have that all people have, say, for example, by virtue of the creation, by virtue of our creation in the image of God. And so I thought, I want to be able to equip students and and people so that they would not be so fearful of engaging with unbelievers on many of these issues so that they could appeal to the book of nature. In that regard, I want to say we should always use scripture by all means. Absolutely. It's the most powerful tool that we have in our arsenal of weapons to fight against this in the spiritual warfare that we do battle. But why would we tie one hand behind our backs and not appeal also to the book of nature?
1: You mentioned earlier Richard Muller, and just so our listeners can be aware of, Richard Muller, what he's kind of argued is just a couple of things, if I'm I'm to summarize his argument, and it's this, is that scholasticism of the Middle Ages is not a set of beliefs. Rather, scholasticism is a way of reading the sources and a way of doing theology. It's a method Mm -hmm. rather than a belief, and then Muller goes beyond that that, and shows also that the next generation after Calvin did not radically break with Calvin. Rather, there was a continuity or a trajectory Mm -hmm. in the post-Reformed theologians that connected them back to Calvin. They weren't Mm -hmm. radically breaking from Calvin, because Mm -hmm. sometimes the idea is that these post-Reformation theologians, Mm -hmm. they sort of just went back to this old, evil scholasticism Mm -hmm. of the Middle Ages. And Richard Muller has shown from his historical sources that that's actually not the case. That's not what has happened. There is a trajectory and a continuity in which Calvin and Luther and others were actually using some scholastic methods, because it's a method, not a system of beliefs, Mm -hmm. and those after Calvin, Mm -hmm. they were not radically breaking from Calvin. There's a continuity and growth. And that's an important contribution to our understanding of theology and of apologetics in that as well. Yeah. Well, one of the most important chapters in Reforming Apologetics is chapter five, mm-hmm. in which is on historic worldview theory. I mm-hmm. thought that was this crucial key chapter in mm-hmm. your book, Reforming Af- Apologetics, that was just so enlightening, so helpful.
2: Yeah. Historic worldview theory is the term that I use to describe this concept that arises in the late 18th and 19th century. And it's this idea that with a worldview, you have an exhaustive explanation of the world and reality. And on the one hand, the nomenclature is very common these days, not just in the Reformed tradition, but throughout there were a number of books that you could go look at that talk about worldview this, worldview that. And so I don't want to necessarily toss out the term itself, worldview worldview. Myself, personally, I'm not terribly fond of it, but if somebody wants to use it, okay, fine. But the question is, is where did it come from? Very quickly, Kuyper was one of the first to introduce it into, you know, the English vernacular when his stone lectures at Princeton University in 1905, when he came to the States and gave his lectures, and he talked about needing to develop a comprehensive life and worldview. And he footnotes James Orr's book, 19th century Presbyterian theologian, and Orr was very translucent or very clear about this, that he got the ideas from Kant and Hegel. kuiper I don't think there was any ill will in his part or any kind of hidden agenda. He didn't really talk about so much of its origins. He just cites Orr and moves on. And the impression that you get by reading Kuiper's lectures is, is that, oh, well, this is a Christian idea. Okay, maybe. But when Orr talks about it, he talks about it as this comprehensive explanation of the world. And it comes out of the Enlightenment, and it's this idea, and it's really wedded to evolutionary theory. And it's the idea that there is no common doctrine of man, and because different races evolve— each different race has a different interpretation of the world around us. And these various interpretations as they explain the world and reality around us are incommensurable. They're incompatible because they're coming up from all of these different places and these different races as they've evolved throughout world history and in the world. And so I say that that's historic worldview theory, the idea that it's this comprehensive explanation of the world, it's exhaustive, and each of these different worldviews are are incommensurable, they are incompatible with one another. So this is my connection here that I draw to Van Til and, and to others, really, is that Van Til just adopts the use of the concept. And does it in a very unventilian way, which the Vantilians are supposed to examine the presuppositions of everything that they're using to make sure that they're not imbibing something that may be antithetical to the Christian faith. He just takes it straight from Kuiper. And in fact in some of his works there's just pages and pages where he's typed up Kuiper's lectures almost verbatim and he's quoting them at great length. And I want to say, well, if we want to say it's a worldview, that's fine, but What presuppositions are embedded in the concept that may be helpful or perhaps unhelpful to the apologetic endeavor? If worldview theory is correct and that different people groups, if you will, different races are locked up in incompatible understandings of the world, then there is no sense in which apologetics is useful because there's no way to bridge that gap. And in fact, with, say, for example, somebody like Carl Barth, Karl Barth was very explicit. There is no point of contact with the unbeliever. And so he thinks apologetics is useless. And so if we think through these issues and instead we consider what the Scriptures has to say, it's one thing to say that the Bible gives us, say, a comprehensive explanation of things. If we're talking about the big picture, yeah, God, the world— and human beings, it certainly addresses those topics, and it does so at many points in some fine-tuned, exhaustive details. But on the other hand, the scriptures do not tell us everything about the world. One of the things, for example, we see in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, or in chapter 20 when it talks about religious worship—sorry, chapter 21— is that it says that there are some things that are not addressed by the scriptures that are common to human societies and the light of nature. So this is a historic Reformed confession that is saying the Bible doesn't address everything. There are some things that are outside of the pages of the Bible that we can use, so long as it doesn't contradict with the teaching of scripture. And so in understanding where worldviews came from, what they entail, we should think critically about what we claim the Bible actually teaches. Does the Bible actually teach a comprehensive and exhaustive Christian life and worldview that is absolutely antithetical at every point to other systems of belief? And I don't think that that's the case. I think that the unbelievers have many points of overlap with the Christian, you know, the Christian's experience and the Christian knowledge that we have of the world, a Christian's knowledge of the world. And if that's the case, if there's overlap, then that means that we can have discussions with unbelievers. We can challenge them, that we can have points of agreement. But we might also, obviously, when it comes to the gospel, there will be significant points of disagreement, what Van Til would have called the antithesis, where you're challenging unbelief and it's it's sin on their part and you have to confront them with the truth and with the truth of scripture or the truth of the book of nature. And if that's the case, then we have to be careful as we use this worldview concept so that we don't make the Bible say more than it actually says.
1: It is now time for Toy Box Hero, that time in the show when Garrick and I take toys from our children, place those toys into combat with one another until one of them dies or we just give up on our argument. And so this week we are bringing – what have you got, Garrick, and from which child is it?
0: Okay. In the rotation, I am back to my youngest child, our infant or toddler prodigy of – 17 months now I guess. So, it's her toy today, which is always a bit tougher. Who am I going up against today? This would be my second child, our 18-year-old. Oh, okay. Yeah, this could be this could be kind of hard. So, this is a new recent toy that has become an instant favorite. There is a TV show that is no longer going, but it was one of the favorites of our oldest child, our 13-year-old daughter back when she was young. And so we've gotten our youngest hooked on it. And Bethany went out and found a stuffed animal of this character. So today I present to you Olivia the pig. That's right. Olivia the pig. She likes to wear red and she hates going to bed and she's extremely creative and imaginative.
1: Well, what I have is from our 18-year-old, and what Skylar brought to me was a necklace, actually. But it is not just any necklace. It is the Time Turner from Book 3 of Harry Potter. It is the Time Turner that Hermione has in The Prisoner of Azkaban, that it has all of these wonderful twirly, spinny things and time going through it. It's pretty impressive. I wish it worked. Oh, that would be wonderful because that would mean that a lot of our book contracts would get done on time and <laughs> our papers for them. How did
0: she get a hold of that after Dumbledore's army destroyed all of them at the Ministry of Magic?
1: Well, oddly enough, they apparently have found some more because at Universal Studios in Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> for a mere 1999. They have, 1999. <laughs> they have So here's my thought on who would win in these. I think. I mean, I think I would just keep going back in time and punching the pig again. That's right.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess basically you just continue to rewind time and eventually, at least once, you'd have to be able to defeat the pig, you'd think.
1: Exactly. I think you just keep going back. And so we really should have talked about a certain share song to do with this <laughs> as well. <laughs>
0: All right, well, this round goes to the Jones children and the magical time turner. But in some sense, we all win because if we defeat the pig, there's
1: always bacon.
0: <laughs> yes, this is true.
1: If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. It's been a couple of difficult weeks in Louisville and in cities throughout the United States. Uh, in Louisville, at least, Brianna Taylor, a young woman, killed actually several months ago. And it's come to light gradually that her killing was unjust under any sort of standard, unfair, And then demonstrations have led to violence. I've co-written or written a couple of articles recently on this, if you're interested in those. One of them for the Gospel Coalition called The Gospel and the Pursuit of Justice in Your City that I wrote with Jarvis Williams and Jamal Williams. And then on my own website, one called The Long Shadow of American slavery. And in this particular context of this difficult time we're having in the United States, the song that we're looking at today is actually a really fitting song. The song is Free Will by the band Rush. And the reason I say it's fitting is because of the fact that as you look at the history of the past several centuries, really all of human history, but in this particular instance, the past 400 or so years, and you see oppression and injustice and violence, and yet we as Christians, we believe that God is somehow sovereign. And we have to ask the question, does saying God is sovereign, does that mean that God directly decreed and determined all the things that we've seen that have led to so much strife and tension in our world, the stealing of human beings, Jim Crow, redlining, all of these things that have now erupted into violence? And we have to ask the real question is, if we think God directly decreed this, how can God possibly be good? But if God is sovereign. What does that really mean? And so what we'll be looking at today is the song Free Will, but talking about the degree to which we as Christians believe that there's human freedom and human choices in the midst of believing also that God is sovereign and in control.
0: Yeah, it, it has been just a brutal few weeks. Well, I mean, if we're being really honest, for different reasons, it's it's been a brutal few months or for some of us, (laughs) I include myself in this group, it's been a brutal year. 2020 has been very rough from the get-go. And in the last couple of weeks, it's just hard to fathom all that's gone on and the choices that human beings are making all across this country and this globe. And not a few times have I wondered and asked and pleaded, many times through tears, why? Like, if not why, Lord, how long? How long will we have to endure this? And this is this problem of evil and, and suffering and human choices and how that fits with God being sovereign in control. This is one of the most significant questions in apologetics. This is one of the most significant questions asked to Christians about their faith. So let's dive in and take a look at the song Free Will by Rush.
1: If I think of the bands I listen to, it's pretty much Van Halen, Rush, mm-hmm. King's X, Journey, mm-hmm. and U two. That's yes. that's yeah. pretty much the list right there. Yeah, U 2s never. That a phase. I listen to no. No, that's a consistent. That thing. is, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's an always thing that I listened to. And I've just listened to Rush ever since the first time I really heard Rush was when I was driving back and forth to college and listening to classic rock radio and started listening to this and realizing this is amazing. It just appealed to me at that time. I was really growing in my guitar playing and just the technical virtuosity of everything about Rush, every instrument just. Perfect all the time, and time signatures that I couldn't make any sense of at that particular time. It was just impressive listening to them. And so it was strictly what drew me in at first was just how amazing they were as musicians.
0: Rush began. As a band in August of 1968 in a housing subdivision in the suburbs of Toronto. That's right, they're Canadian, not British. But that's I mean, what we're kind talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We we have ways of making you pronounce your O's. So they released an album entitled Rush. Very creative of them. Only one song from this first album received really significant airplay. It was a song called Working Man. Six years after that, uh, their drummer quit, and a new drummer joined th- at that time, the band guitarist Alex. I always want to say Leifson, right? Or is it Lifeson? Or Lifeson. Is think it Lifson? So. Yes. I always feel like it's something fancier than that, and I always want to say Leifson. So Leif-a-son. Alex Lifson.
1: Leifeson.
0: Leafson. <laughs> you don't pronounce the end. And bass player Getty Lee. And that drummer was none other than Neil Pert. And from 1974. Until two thousand and fifteen, it were it was these three musicians that made up the band Rush. Forty one years of glorious Canadian music from this band. And I found out, actually,
1: after having said it myself, Neil Peart, for a long time, that it's actually Neil Peart. No. And I learned this from a video with Paul Rudd, who was a big Rush fan, and found out that it's actually Neil Peart. No. Which is just, I don't know. I, that makes me want to just say, Lee for <laughs> at that point. So here, Hey, is that my sandwich? Sid, I told you not to eat Mr. Peart's sandwich. It's just Peart. You sure that it's not pout? I think he would know. Are you sure? Because we're pretty big fans. Chill, man. And Getty Lee, his name, his last name is not actually Lee. It's Wine Rib, which he dropped at one point, obviously. And he is the vocalist and the bassist for the band. I think one of the most just amazing bass players ever to play rock and roll. And as his last name, Wine Rib, suggests, he is Jewish. And his parents actually met and fell in love at Auschwitz. They were in the concentration camp, just a a bizarre story that they wrote the song Red Sector A about in Rush. One of the best things about Getty Lee, though, is that he is a massive baseball fan. And that's just a great one right there. He was a Detroit Tigers fan, which Ooh. is basically, that's basically Southern Canada up Ooh. there.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so he's, he was a Detroit Tigers fan. But then when expansion came, he became a Toronto Blue Jays fan. And just a year or so ago, I was at the Negro Leagues Museum for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. And I realized there that Getty Lee, had donated a massive amount of his collection of baseball memorabilia to the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. And I remember a few years ago when I was a pastor in Tulsa, Rush came to Tulsa and Getty Lee went to a Tulsa Drillers game, which is a minor (laughs) league, double-A minor league. I think it was at that time minor league for the Texas Rangers. And he actually took in the first couple of innings of the game and then went from there to the concert from there. And apparently he does this at most of the places he goes. He'll go, even to the minor league games, take in the first couple of innings, head straight to the concert.
0: So rock musicians who are baseball fans, there's a few of those, right? One of my all-time favorite, in fact, you may or may not know this, the first concert I ever attended was a Billy Joel concert. I don't count the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that I saw at Six Flags. I count Billy Joel as my first. He's a huge baseball fan, of course, being from New York. Who else well, Steve Perry, who is the
1: lead singer of Journey, of course, he is a fan of the San Francisco Giants. And one of the ones, my favorite one, Scott Stapp of Creed, is a fan of Miami Marlins, which is like, they deserve each other. He's the one. <laughs> He's the one.
0: Let's play ball. It's game day. We
1: want strikeouts, base hits, double plays. Take the
0: field, hear the roar on the crowd.
1: So before Neil Peart joined Rush, (laughs) I can't get over that. Neil Peart, yes, he was in a band not called Rush, but Hush. No kidding. His band (laughs) was called Hush. Anyway, so he was in this band called Hush. So he went from Hush to Rush. And if it had not been for Neil Peart, Rush would have been absolutely different. Not only the drums, but the lyrics, because Neil Peart is the one who writes almost all of the lyrics for Rush. Now, in 2007, he was ranked number two after Sting as. As the worst lyricist in all of rock and roll, but
0: yeah, yeah, there's this an is by there. Yeah.
1: Blender magazine. I've never actually seen Blender magazine, but this is the same magazine that said, We built this city on rock and roll was the worst song of all
0: time. Worse even than the number two song, which was Achy Breaky Heart. So clearly you cannot trust the people at Blender magazine. We built this city.
2: We built
1: But then throughout the late 1970s, their music just got more and more amazingly complex. And they really began to do lyrics that are more about transcendental realities of ordinary life, philosophical reflections, things like that. And then in 1980, they came out with what, for me anyway, is one of their best albums. And that album was Permanent Waves, which included the songs Spirit of Radio and the one we're looking at today, Free Will, which is just a music. Musical monstrosity of a song you can't count it out when you're playing it I've tried over and over and trying to play it on guitar and you can't It's most songs are written in like 4-4 four, four, or 3-4 this song is written in alternating 13-4 and 15-4 with some 12-8 in the bridge at least as I count it
0: So in this song, and several others, it does seem as if Rush has little use for religion of any kind. When it comes to his Jewish faith, Geddy Lee says, I consider myself a Jew as a race, but not so much as a religion. I'm not down with religion at all. I'm a Jewish atheist, if that's a thing.
1: Which apparently for him, it is Neil Peart. Similarly, his view of religion is, he says, I went to Sunday school as a little kid. I don't really understand it or why religion is needed. And it's kind of a brainwashing. That's Neil Peart's view of religion. And one of the things you do see in Peart's lyrics is that he kind of always is forcing what I would call a false dichotomy. And I think it's something that's a dichotomy that He perceives, he believes, is actually true. And you have, on the one hand, irrational faith. So you have faith, and that's irrational. It's driven by bigotry and hatred, emotion, brainwashing, things like that. That's the irrationality of faith. Or on the other hand, you have a rational embrace of a random cosmos in which science and reason are the supreme authorities. He really, you'll find this in a lot of his songs, this sort of dichotomy between an irrational faith or a rational embrace of a random cosmos with science and reason.
0: And you see that so clearly in the song Free Will. Yeah, I hear some of the lyrics. There are those who think that life has nothing left to chance, a host of holy horrors to direct our aimless dance, a planet of playthings we dance on the strings, of powers we cannot perceive. If the stars aren't aligned or the gods are maligned, blame is better to give than receive." So what you see there very clearly, two different
1: options. He sees the world in this way. You have the world of chance or free will. That's one option. You can follow with chance and choose free will. Or... You have a life of fate at the hands of a sovereign God. And in his mind, if there is an all-powerful God, the only explanation for those who suffer is that they've been, in his words, dealt a losing hand. The cards were stacked against them. They weren't born in lotus land. And, of course, the lotus is a flower that in Hinduism represents purity and prosperity. And lotus land, that would be a great name for a like a psychedelic band. we're talking about here is the degree to which God's sovereignty causes or constrains human decisions. That's what we're talking about here, not how people are saved, not whether they can choose the good in their own power, but the degree to which God's sovereignty causes or constrains human decisions. And the topic for today is, another way of asking this is, when I make a choice, could I have chosen something other than what I chose? So I have chosen for right now a hat to wear, which that hat is from the Kansas City Monarchs, one of the Negro League teams that played before baseball was integrated. And so wearing that was my favorite cap. I could have chosen another cap today. I could have chosen my hat that makes me very sad when I look at it. The one that I purchased when I saw the Kansas City Royals defeat the Toronto Blue Jays that says Kansas City owns the American League which they did on that day and never have since at that time <laughs> and so I could have worn that hat the question is or could I have could I really have made any other choice did god know beforehand what I would choose yes we have to say that we know that god knows ahead of time but if god knew ahead of time was there really any way I could have chosen Otherwise, was I predestined from all eternity such that I could not have made any other choice to wear a Kansas City Monarch's hat right now, or could I have made another choice? And if we don't really have the capacity to choose, is there a sense in which Rush is right? Are we just marionettes on an aimless dance with God? pulling the strings. And as I said before, Russia only gives us two options. And the philosophical terms for the options they give us are determinism, okay? They say all preordained, a prisoner in chains. That's one option they give us is determinism. The other option they give us in philosophical terms is called libertarianism. Has nothing to do whatsoever with libertarian politics. We are not even going there on this program. Has nothing to do with that. I couldn't even tell you
0: what those are. (laughs) (laughs)
1: And so libertarianism is not what we're talking about in terms of politics, but it's the term that's used when we could actually have chosen otherwise in some sense. And the way Rush puts that is we are genetic blends with uncertain ends on a fortune hunt that's far too fleet, that everything is up to choices and chance in that. Those are the two options that Rush gives us in the song Free Will is determinism
0: or libertarianism. And as Timothy mentioned earlier, that is a false dichotomy, because those aren't the only two options. And not only that, Christians have rejected both of these options from the beginning. There are other options. And we've had a problem with this hard determinism, some have called it fatalism, even, since the beginning, because it's hard to see how that Kind of divine sovereignty doesn't make God the creator or the author of evil. Or another way to say it is it's hard to see how God doesn't will or desire evil in this sense. And we've also rejected a total libertarianism because it does away with the belief that we have since the beginning of. God's sovereignty, and it leads to a view that we tend to call open theism, where God has no knowledge, no certain knowledge of future events. And that's right out as far as an option goes as well because of our doctrine of God and, and what we think about his comprehensive knowledge. And so, there are many other options between determinism and libertarianism, and we're going to talk about two of them here on on this episode. And one of
1: those is called compatibilism. Another term for compatibilism is soft determinism, and it places a higher emphasis on God's sovereignty. So that's one thing that's in between, a possibility that Christians can embrace that's in between total libertarianism and total determinism is compatibilism. And the assertion of compatibilism is simply that real human choices can be compatible, hence the name compatibilism, with determinism, that there's a form of determinism that can take into account real human choices. And in compatibilism, the basic idea is that every human being wills or chooses according to his or her nature. In fact, in some sense, everything in all creation, it happens according to its nature in Compatibilism. And so these choices are free in one sense. They're free in the sense that they're not coerced, but they're also determined in the sense that these choices will always be according to the individual's nature. So, in the words of a Reformed theologian of the 19th century, B.B. Warfield, he said, voluntary choice means the ability to choose according to what we want, Or desire most. So, a compatibilistic view is a view that says we have choices. We have real choices. We can make voluntary choices. But those choices we make, they are constrained by our own nature and our own desires. And very frankly, because we and the cosmos are fallen. What happens and what we choose, what we desire, is sin, and it leads to brokenness. And so compatibilism, it leans in a deterministic direction because our choices actually are determined by our nature, and we don't determine our own nature. We do what is according to the design of our mind. And it's probably the most common explanation of human freedom, human free agency among Reformed theologians. And there's some good biblical support that can be drawn out to support this kind of idea. You kind of have that in Acts chapter 2, for example, where it says, this man, referring to Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So this is something that God both knew and in some sense determined It says, this man you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So, in other words, God planned the cross, but human beings committed the crime according to their own design, according to their own desire, and they are therefore responsible for their choices. That's compatibilism in just as brief a way as you can possibly put it.
0: Yeah, just to to add a helpful illustration that was shared with me when I was first hearing of these things the first time ever, what changes in Genesis 3 is not our ability to choose freely, but it's our nature that changes, and and therefore our will, our desire, as Timothy said. And so, a good illustration is, if you think about a fish in the sea, right? The fish is free to choose anything that a fish can choose as a fish, but a fish cannot choose to suddenly be a helicopter, right? Because being a helicopter and doing the things a helicopter does is outside of the fish's options. It is contrary to its nature. But there's another possibility that does lean more towards a libertarian direction and that's a fun little option that we like to call molinism. This view is is named after a 16th century Roman Catholic Jesuit priest Luis de Molina, right? And Molina wanted to he wanted to reconcile the emphasis of his time on human freedom. He wanted to reconcile that with Augustine's teachings about the sovereignty of God. And so, Molinism, what it does is it attempts to demonstrate, to show the consistency of God's comprehensive knowledge, specifically when it comes to future events, to show the consistency with that knowledge and creatures' libertarian free will. So, Molinism. Molinism.
1: It is a difficult one to understand. A lot of fun to talk about. It is a lot of fun to talk about in this. And so what Molinism requires is that we recognize that God possesses two types of knowledge— He possesses knowledge of what could be. That's called natural knowledge. And these are necessary truths that are true independently of God's will. These are all the things that might be, could be, maybe be. It's all those things. That's natural knowledge. These are all logical possibilities. Exactly. And God also knows, though, not only natural knowledge, what could be, but also what actually will be. And this is called free knowledge. Knowledge And these are things that become true only in virtue of God's will, only because of God's will in this. And what Luis de Molina suggested is another category of knowledge that God possesses that's in between natural knowledge and free knowledge, in between what could be and what actually will be. And because Luis de Molina was an extremely boring person, what he calls this amazing knowledge— that's between these two, is he calls it middle knowledge. So
0: what is middle knowledge? It is God's knowledge of contingent truths, truths that depend on something else. So these are contingent truths that depend on something else, but they do not depend on God's will. So it's God's knowledge of contingent truths that are independent of his will. Let me keep going a little bit. Maybe I can clarify. So the question is, okay, well, what does God middle know? (laughs) Which is just a a fun way of putting it, right? Specifically, I think I'm going to try to avoid any super technical language. Basically, what God knows with this middle knowledge is he knows what a particular creature would do if that creature were in a certain situation and had free will I guess another way to say it would be what a specific creature would do if that creature were in a certain situation and were free with respect to that situation. So an example, if Timothy were free with regards to a coffee drinking decision, complete freedom, Timothy would fill in the blank. Timothy would choose to overpay for a large iced sugary drink that's not really considered coffee from a local ginormous mega chain. That's what Timothy would do if given the choice between all of these coffees in front of him and he were entirely free. So that reality, that fact is something that God knows because of his middle knowledge. And there are some
1: biblical texts that hint at something like this, perhaps, or at least those who are Molinists will assert that they do. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So this idea of God knowing what would happen if and him acting in appropriate ways to accomplish his will in light of that. You have Deuteronomy chapter 31 that repeatedly says that if the Israelites rebel, here is what will happen. So you do have some hints, at least, that could lean in this direction. And of course, Moldenism is very influential. I can think of people like William Lane Craig, Kenneth Keithley, people who assert that this is the way in which God works his will out throughout history and throughout time.
0: Yeah, we'll link to a a very helpful kind of short video by a wicked smart philosopher at at Notre Dame. You can check that out. It's real short, but it it kind of explains this view of middle knowledge and how it relates to whether God can tell the future or, or whether the future is fixed.
1: Now, when it comes to which one of these options, and as we've already hinted at, these are not the only two options for Christians. These are the two perhaps dominant views, compatibilism or Molinism. I'll admit I struggle to find sufficient support for Molinism Scripture. I'll admit, I struggle to find this evidence of anything like a middle moment, especially in texts like Isaiah chapter 46, in which God describes that I am God, there's no other like me, I know the end from the beginning, and also in Isaiah, where God says that He decrees all that comes to pass. It seems that God's sovereignty is somehow a little bit more active than. What middle knowledge Molinism allows for. At best, for me anyway, it's a philosophical model that describes one of the ways that God's purposes might coexist with human freedom. That's what I see in Molinism. But even as I will say, I don't find sufficient support for it to be able to embrace Molinism. I'll also say that it's completely orthodox. I can partner with somebody who is a Molinist any day. It is a completely orthodox view and one that many faithful Christians hold this particular view. For myself, I end up kind of taking a slightly different perspective on this and one that I will admit I'm influenced by Francis Schaefer on it. And that is that there is simply a mystery here in which human freedom is true And God's sovereignty is true at the same time. And one of the things that kind of has influenced me, I guess, on that, Francis Schaeffer in his True Spirituality, he puts it this way. He says, there is a unit of personality which makes a true choice in the thought world, speaking of human nature and human choices, which in turn becomes a true first cause and he uses these illustrations analogies between of human free agency and divine sovereignty of a game of ping pong in which they're interplaying back and forth at all times of a mobile that is perfectly balanced like a child's mobile that would hang above their crib that is perfectly balanced between divine sovereignty and human agency and what Francis Schaeffer says he says to tone it down on either side is to destroy the marvel of the Bible. And that's where I end up landing. Is just, this is a mystery. There's nothing wrong with exploring how exactly this fits together, but at the same time, ultimately it is and will remain a mystery. But no matter what, what we do see clearly is that the two options that Neil Peart gives us in free will are not our only options. For centuries, Christians have explored other options for that in-between space between determinism and libertarianism, and we have two good options. We've articulated both compatibilism and Molinism, as well as the one I've said of a mystery between those two that we don't have to choose between that false dichotomy that Neil Peart puts in front of us.
0: Yeah, options that that sadly he doesn't seem to be aware of. In one interview, Peart said, I went to Sunday school as a a little kid, and when they tell us to sing the song about God watches each sparrow fall and all of that, and I said, well, no, I don't really think so. What would I do if I went to heaven to meet God? That wouldn't be a pleasant meeting. I'd say, why did you create those parasites that grow behind babies' eyes and destroy their vision on the way out? That's not any kind of God to be worshiping. So what we see there in Neil Peart
1: is that really his only category, it seems, for a universe that has an all-powerful God is determinism. That's his only category he has for that, sadly. And what's interesting to me is despite all of his emphasis on free will and chance and all of that, there are times when he seems to have believed at one time in some sort of a cause and effect. In the universe. He said that at one point he had pages of charities that he contributed to, and I would show my daughter who we're giving to and why as a karma thing. So he really believed that somehow he got goodness out of giving and then. In 1997, tragically, his daughter was killed in a car accident on the way home from college, and 10 months after that, his wife died of cancer, and he walked away from music for almost four years after that just due to the grief of losing both his daughter and his wife. And when he did that… He seems to have concluded that everything really was simply random, that he really believed everything really was random and chance, and that this had not happened because of anything he had done wrong, but it had also not happened because of anything he had done right. Everything was just. Random. And he says, interestingly, that that freed him to practice true and authentic generosity. He started giving just to give instead of giving to try to get something out of it. And what's sad to me as I look at that is how even in the midst of that, he did not, was not exposed to the idea that maybe God can be truly in charge in a way that allows for authentic human freedom that allows for tragedy to happen that allows for these things and of course our belief is that ultimately the answer to many of these things is the cross of jesus somehow he doesn't see these things Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics podcast. And also, thank you to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com for more theology and apologetics resources. If you're considering further training in apologetics, I also want to invite you to take a look at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree in apologetics on campus or online, we would be glad to have you as a guest in our virtual, Preview Day. To register, go to sbts.edu visit. That's sbts.edu visit. And also, if you're interested in another podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Core Quar- and the truth, the apologetics podcast.